walking with six legs uh, on a robot being algorithmically actuated by a full-body exoskeleton. So all of these experiences have been about exploring these alternate kinds of anatomies. Hello and welcome to the Art Guide Australia podcast with Tiani Mikas. This episode is the seventh in the Long Run series, where I speak with artists who've had practices spanning 60 years. And this episode is with Stellark. Stellark is just shy of the 60-year mark, but his performances and installations, and the way his body is so central to his art, it's so compelling and extreme, and gets to very meaningful ideas about life and technology that I really wanted to speak with him. Born in Cyprus, Stellark's family moved to Australia when he was four years old. He studied art in Melbourne, and soon after lived in Japan for almost two decades in the 70s and 80s. He first became well-known for his early suspension performances, where he'd hang naked, suspended by hooks into his skin, whether in the gallery or in a public setting. In investigating the limits and capabilities of the human body, his later performances are often entwined with technology. These include placing an artwork in his stomach, a body with a third hand, another body controlling six legs, giving his agency over to performance viewers, and rather famously growing an extra ear on his arm. Stellark is incredibly interesting to speak with, and we talk about his suspension performances and some more recent technology-based performances. We also discuss what Stellark means when he says the human body is obsolete, as well as questions of agency and death, and the ways in which Stellark has used his body in his art for almost 60 years. And of course, before we get started, a very kind thank you to our sponsor for this series, Lena Joel Auctioneers and Valuers, who are based in Melbourne and Sydney. I think that there's so much to talk about, but I am curious to start at the beginning. And you were born in Greece, and as a young child, your family moved to Australia. And I know you were only four years old at the time, so you'd have probably little memory of that move. But what was that overall upbringing like for you? So, in, in fact, I was born in, in Cyprus. My parents are, are Greek Cypriot, and we emigrated um, to Australia, I think, in the early 50s. So I don't have much memory of, of yeah, I don't. <laughs> I really don't have much memory. <laughs> but I guess, I mean, was there any kind of migrant experience with that upbringing or it was, it was just something that didn't really impact you as you were growing up? Well, I grew up in Sunshine and Footscray and, and of course, at that time, Greeks and Italians were the immigrants uh, here. So, you know, there was a little bit of uh, of that kind of um, thing happening, but it really didn't bother me. I don't have any really bad childhood experiences or, uh, you know, growing up felt that I was ostracised in any way. Yeah. Was there much interest in either art or technology at home? Well, my, my father was everything from a, a taxi driver to a mechanic to a tailor to a builder. So really, it was a typical immigrant situation where my parents weren't really educated. They really didn't understand my interest in art. They had hoped I would do something 
you know, like medicine or failing that architecture, <laughs> something that they considered um, more useful, more secure. Yeah. So then how did you get to the decision to go to art school? Oh, I think as, as a young person growing up, you develop interests that, you know, are difficult to pinpoint where they start, but I really enjoyed being uh, by myself drawing and painting at the time and I guess there was always this kind of desire to be an artist although until I got to art school I really didn't know exactly what that meant. Mm. So if you I'm guessing you probably went to art school under some painting or drawing guise was there some moment when you became introduced to performance art? Oh, I quickly discovered I was a bad painter in art school. <laughs> um, and, and, but you know, that, like, that's the flippant answer to how I began doing performance. But I guess I was always interested in the human body, how it evolves, uh, how it becomes aware and operates and interacts in the world. So there was always this sort of, interest in the body's capabilities. There was always this envy of gymnasts and dancers who who used their bodies as a means of artistic expression. And, you know, in the sort of late 60s, there was the realisation that other artists were doing performance activities as, as artworks. On that sort of, I guess, envy of, you know, dancers or singers or gymnasts, and you, you talked about in the past about people who use their bodies to not just generate emotion, but they can have certain kinds of experiences that other people who can't do those physical things can't have those experiences. Was that like some early kind of disappointment with the limitation of your body? Uh, not really. It was certainly a process of discovering the kind of psychological and physiological parameters of, of your body. I mean, for example, in the early... 70s between 1973 and 1975 I made three films of the inside of my body into my stomach the left and right bronchi of my lungs and into my colon and this was not for any medical reason this was for for an, an aesthetic intent but it was this idea that the body was no longer simply a surface of skin but rather an internal architecture of structures, spaces and circulatory systems. And, you know, that coupled with the sensory deprivation uh, performances I was doing at the time really focused on the body as, as an evolutionary architecture that was, although very complex, was not very well designed, not very robust, not very reliable, <laughs> um, with a, a fairly slow metabolism, with a, you know, a 1,400 cubic centimetre brain. All of these things became quickly apparent. You know, you have to continuously gulp air to stay alive. Your heart needs to beat millions of times in it in your life for you to, to, to keep staying alive. So there was this realisation that in fact not only was the body inadequate but perhaps it was profoundly obsolete, especially in the technological terrain of 
fast and precise and powerful machines and computational systems that it now has to not only interface with but sometimes compete with. Yeah, when I hear you say that, to me it almost, I mean, you're becoming aware of like the body's vulnerability but also just the knowledge of death. Do you, do you think that has some part of it? Oh, well, I mean, uh, one can argue that as soon as one is born, uh, you know, the, the very functions they perform guarantees their death. You know? So, uh, I, I mean, that's a, a somewhat dark outlook to have on life. I, I really don't think of it that way at all. I'm generally kind of optimistic and... You do what you you can in the time that you have. There's there's really um, no other way of getting around that. So what's the point in pathologically being concerned about it? No, no. But I guess I mean when you say the body's obsolete, and I know that's something that you it's it's sort of almost your phrase in a way. Like, what's it obsolete? Like, what do you think a human body needs to do that it isn't doing right now? I mean, I I guess I just don't have the imagination to imagine, other than, like, beating death and illness, what my body is obsolete for right now. Well, I think the realisation is that the body has always been in excess of its biology. In other words, what determines our humanity is our language, is our artefacts, is our instruments, our computational systems. Uh, These are in addition to our our biological bodies. So the body can be argued uh, has always been a a prosthetically augmented uh, body. So with these projects and, and activities, there's no romantic nostalgia for a purely biological body. There's a realisation that, in a way, the body has always been obsolete and it's been inadequate, not only to stay alive in in an environment of very powerful natural forces, but now in, in, in this technological terrain that it's engineered over thousands of years, that there's a realisation its awareness has been extended by its senses and its instruments, and it can manage vast amounts of of data with its computational systems. It can be propelled at speeds that it, it can't biologically locomote with. So all of these things created this this realisation of the inadequacy of the body. The body may be obsolete, but of course it's not yet extinct. (laughs) So, So all of these projects and performances have been about exploring alternate sorts of embodiment, alternate anatomical architectures, you know, what about a body with a, a third hand, an extended arm, an extra ear, an artwork inside its stomach, walking with six legs uh, on a robot, being algorithmically actuated by a full-body exoskeleton. So all of these experiences have been about exploring these alternate kinds of anatomies yeah, and it's it's fascinating to me that, you know, you wouldn't say that your suspension performances are humble in any way, but that's almost where some of these, you know, more technologically driven works came from. 
And between 1976 and 1988, Mingyuanda took 25 of them where you were suspended with hooks into the skin. How did those works first come about? Well, firstly, there's a, there needs to be a, an understanding that my projects and performances haven't kind of developed in a, in a kind of a linear progression from the physically difficult to the technologically augmented to uh, realms of virtuality and, and, and the internet. Uh, there was always an oscillation between you know, the physical, the technical and, 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 and the virtual. So, for example, the first things I'm, I made in, in art school were helmets and goggles that altered your binocular perception and then the three films of the inside of my body in the early 70s. So those technical and medical explorations occur before the, you know, the physically difficult performances like the suspension events. But I guess these came about having done a series of sensory deprivation performances, again, exploring the parameters of the, of the body. Uh, for example, the performance just before the first suspension event was a performance where for uh, one week I stayed in a gallery, my lips and eyelids were sewn shut surgically with needle and thread, did that myself. And for one week, I couldn't speak, I couldn't see, I, I couldn't eat, I couldn't drink. My body was tethered to the gallery wall with two hooks into, into the skin of my back. So that was the performance just before the first suspension event. But then I did, I, I did a series of suspensions using sort of harnesses and cables. And I wasn't really very, very satisfied with those because... The body seemed more supported than suspended. And I decided that there must be a more elegant way to suspend the body. And, and so when, when I realised that you could sort of insert a hook into your skin and if you inserted 18 of these, you could equally distribute the weight of the body. You, you could suspend the body where the the stretched skin was in fact the support structure. That was the only thing um, you were literally hanging from your skin. So I only had intended to do one of these suspensions, which was kind of horizontal face down. But having done that, I thought, well, what about, you know, suspending the body vertically or upside down? And so that began a series of unintended uh, performances where the body was rotated in space. And then it was like, well, instead of only rotating the body in space, what about uh, different situations, different kinds of spaces? And most of these performances occurred in private gallery spaces close to the public. But what about, you know, hanging from a tree or from an outcrop of rocks 300 metres from shore? So then there were a lot of these site-specific performances where the body was suspended. And sometimes um, the body was suspended very high. Um, in, in Copenhagen, for example, the body was suspended almost 60 metres uh, above the, wow. the, the Royal Theatre in Copenhagen. And in fact, after about 30 metres, 
All you could hear was the the whooshing of the wind, the whirring of the crane motors and the creaking of your skin. (laughs) (laughs) I saw a photo from a 1984 street suspension piece in New York and your your body is sort of suspended about four stories high. And this photograph captures that underneath there's this crowd of people and these really confused-looking policemen And these people who clearly just don't, they're trying to work out what they're seeing, I think. And I mean, I imagine you must have gotten all kinds of reactions to those pieces. Well, the New York one was one, of course, which we couldn't get permission for. We didn't even try to get permission to do that one. It was in East Village on East 11th Street. And we had prepared the body in the fourth floor room of one building when the body was kind of ready to go, we lowered the cable down to street level. Someone picked up the cable, ran across the street, climbed up the fire escape stairs, secured the cable, and then the body comes out of the window and rolls out and comes to a stop about the middle of the street, over the middle of the street. And this was supposed to be a like a 30-minute performance, but uh, the police arrived after about five minutes, and then after about 12 minutes, they had stopped the performance. Uh, they, we, we had locked the downstairs doors, but they broke in and eventually pulled me back uh, through. And, of course, yeah, they didn't understand what was going on. My gallery director there kind of argued that, um, hey, this was an art performance, The police arrested me, not for a display of public nudity, not for performing some sadomasochistic event in public. They arrested me for being a danger to the public. (laughs) Had I fallen on someone? (laughs) Oh, my goodness. I mean, is that... What kind of risks are involved? Like, I'm, I'm sure, you know, with that many hooks, like, you, the likelihood of falling might be low. But, I mean, is there any other kind of pain or or like what's your body going through when you're in that state? Well I quickly discovered in, in, in beginning to do performance that it's easy to have an idea to actualize the idea involves some difficulty and so you have to take the physical consequences for your ideas you know if you want to be suspended from hooks then there's going to be some physical pain involved if you're going to insert a sculpture inside your stomach and the sculpture is going to operate open and close extend and retract have a flashing light and a beeping sound there may be some medical complications to doing that and you can't do it without the help of a of an endoscopist so each project and performance and say the ear on the arm you know that's involved uh, a number of surgeries it hasn't been completed with its original intent I had to undergo uh, a bad infection Uh, I almost lost an arm for an ear there are unintended you know you try to plan as best you can to try to foresee any of the difficulties or problems that might occur but in the end, uh, you take the physical consequences for those ideas. You were doing, like you said, you know, a lot of these performances in the 70s and 80s and starting in the early 60s. And you are one of the artists who, I guess, did leave Australia for a few decades. Was that down to any reason that you felt that, I guess, what was happening in the Australian art world 
you were, I guess your type of performance art didn't fit the mould of the time? Uh, not, not really. I mean, I decided to go to Japan because being Greek, having studied uh, Western art, Western philosophy, I, I always felt that it would be interesting to experience an Oriental culture. And because Japan was also kind of high tech, that was another reason that, that drew me to go there. When I arrived in Japan, I mean, I had no preconceptions. I couldn't even use chopsticks. <laughs> uh, I certainly couldn't speak the language. So I was very naive. I thought perhaps I could um, uh, live off my own artwork. But, yeah, I, I guess looking back, the three things that were interesting or had, a, had an impact in this order... Uh, sumo wrestling, <laughs> uh, buto dance, and Japanese robotics. So, you know, I was confronted with very different perceptions, conceptions of what a body is and how a body performs. And in robot translations of, of bodies, you, know, you began to think of of the mechanics and the anatomical architecture of our biological bodies. Yes. So there wasn't, I mean, surely there must have been some kind of time though where, and not even in, in like a, a boasting sense, but you must have been like, I'm doing something that, you know, no other artist is really doing in this way. Well, being in Japan, I was kind of insulated uh, from a lot of what was happening in Europe and the United States at mm. the time and even back in Australia. But having said that, you know, I did make occasional trips. I did do some performances in Europe, um, in, in Germany, um, uh, in the United States, in Los Angeles, New York. So, of course, I realised what else was going on, that other artists were, were involved in, in performance work. But, you know, I really wasn't part of the kind of arts community that I might have been had I remained in Australia. I was very isolated. For example, when I did make some Japanese artist friends and when I started performing with my third hand, they would kind of come up to me and jokingly remind me of a Japanese saying, high tech, low art. <laughs> <laughs> Because at the time, what was happening in Japanese art was the monohai approach, which was kind of installations using Japanese paper, rocks, uh, natural materials like, like wood. And so making these installations, which were pretty kind of low-tech stuff, of course, it's all changed now, but I'm talking about the sort of late 60s, early 70s. You've got so many works we could discuss, but just drawing upon some recent ones, I mean, last year you performed Stickman and Reclining Stickman for the 2020 Adelaide Biennial of Australian Art. Do you want to maybe talk through what those performances were and how they came about? Well, Reclining Stick Man was in fact a, a nine metre long, four metre high stick figure robot actuated by pneumatic rubber muscles. It continuously rotated on its axis. 
its shadow was anamorphically projected on three walls of the gallery space. It had both local and online interactivity. So, for example, when the Art Gallery of South Australia was closed for a couple of months because of COVID, the Reclining Stickman installation was the only one that remained operational and interactive. Anyone, anywhere, at any time could access the robot and interact with it. And um, we had video streaming, four cameras, video streaming, so you could see your interaction live. Uh, But I did a five-minute performance where... My body was positioned on the torso of this large robot and I could animate the robot's limbs with a pair of pneumatic joysticks, improvising with both the local and online uh, participants. And that was a five-hour performance, continuous performance. So with the sounds of the reclining stick man, the compressed pneumatic sounds, you can imagine the, the, the pneumatic rubber muscles expanding in girth and extending in length as they exhaust. So the, the, the compressed air sounds, the solenoid clicking sounds, and then the droning sounds from the motor that rotates the reclining stickman on its axis. sounds also immerse the audience into uh, into this kind of visual choreography of bending of bending limbs (laughs) (laughs) there was another work that really interested me um rewired remixed from 2017 do you i think you'll do a better job of probably explaining the work than me and and how that one came about yeah, for a, for a long time I had this idea of, of a performance where I could share my agency and share my senses in some way. And I guess this idea kind of germinated over a period of five or six years. But for um, an exhibition titled Radical Ecologies at the Perth Institute of Contemporary Art several years ago, I decided to try to realise, actualise this idea. And we connected Perth with uh, New York and London. So for five days, six hours every day, continuously, I could only see with the eyes of someone in London I could only hear with the ears of someone in New York, but anyone anywhere could access my right arm via the exoskeleton I was wearing and choreograph its movements. So it was a kind of uh, sharing of senses and a distributing of agency. And this was a, a project where the body becomes this kind of extended operational system 
that performs beyond the boundaries of its skin and beyond the, the local space that it inhabits. You were kind of in three places at once. <laughs> Two spaces virtually in London and New York and one space physically grounded at the Perth Institute of Contemporary Art. And it was very strange at the end of that week when you kind of removed your head-up display, you extracted your arm from the exoskeleton, you removed your sound-cancelling headphones, and all of a sudden your kind of performative and operational experience collapsed into this one space, this one a locality that was a weird experience yeah I can't even begin to imagine and also just I feel like people's agency is something that you know they safeguard so closely what do you think it is that makes you so able to freely offer that up for a little while well, I've always wanted to problematize what it means to be a body what it means to have a body what it means to have agency if we really have that. In fact, the more and more performances I, I've done, the less and less I've thought I had a mind of my own nor any mind at all in the traditional metaphysical sense. For, for example, with the Fractal Flesh performance in 1995, my body was in Luxembourg, but people in the Pompidou Centre in Paris and the Media Lab in Helsinki could access my body via a touchscreen interface and remotely choreograph the movements of my body via a muscle stimulation system. Now, the issue here wasn't so much who is in control. <laughs> when we talk about these performances, people want to find out, well, who's controlling who? But it's not about control. It's about constructing this more complex, extended operational system, which is this body uh, with other bodies interfaced with other technologies. And in fact, that's what's happening now. <laughs> but, but as an aesthetic gesture, it has more potency. There's such a lack of fear in those performances. Is that, do you ever get afraid or uncertain at any moment? Well, I, I wouldn't characterise it that way. It's probably uh, not so much about fear, but about being how foolish you are. <laughs> um, but seriously, uh, you know, you try to, to uh, evaluate the situation uh, you try to, to foresee the problems. But then there is a point in time when, you know, thinking stops and the, the performance or the action begins and you have to trust in your own planning and trust in the people who are, are assisting. When you're planning these works, are you thinking about a viewer and what they're going to experience or think when they see a performance like these? Uh, the performances have never been constructed for an audience as such. Of course, as an artwork, an audience is inevitable, uh, whether it's in the documentation of the performance or an installation in a gallery. Having said that, what the artist is trying to do is 
not only to have an idea, but to personally experience that idea, to be able to meaningfully articulate it. And it's a process by which you go through a planning, a performance, and then a reflection upon that action. There's a certain look and sound to many of your performances. How cultivated is that? And do you have formal problems in your work the way a painter or a sculptor might? Well, of course, these projects and performances are done in a in an art context. The robots, the exoskeletons, the prosthetic hand, these were not done for some utilitarian or engineering purpose. Having said that, uh, the third hand was sophisticated enough at the time when it was completed in 1980 to get invitations from the Jet Propulsion Lab in Pasadena and the Johnson Space Centre in Houston to demonstrate the the hand to the extravehicular activity group. So some of these projects have certainly been state-of-the-art outcomes, but for purely aesthetic intent. When you've talked about your work, you've talked so much about uh, the role of the artist as someone who generates, and I quote, contestable futures. And I wondered what kind of future you're imagining. As an artist, I'm not comfortable in merely speculating. To speculate about the future is a highly conditional act on my part. That's why I talk about contestable futures rather than futures of necessity. There's always contingency factored in. A future is not a future if it is not of the unpredictable. Um, there are going to be new technologies, new inventions, unexpected ideas from other people which will kind of redirect the trajectories that will result in, 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 in these possible futures. I don't think we should imagine we're doing anything for the future as such, you know. It undermines the present act in itself. You know, having said that, you know, there are observations you make. So, for example, if we could engineer an artificial womb and bring to bear a healthy child, then your existence would not begin with a biological birth. And if we could replace malfunctioning parts of your body with stem cell grown organs, with 3D printed parts, then you need not necessarily die a biological death. So how do you define human existence if it doesn't begin with birth and doesn't end with death. <laughs> so I think that's a very interesting uh, notion to, to reflect upon. Uh, another example that I like to use is, is the um, twin turbine heart, which was first inserted into the chest of a terminally ill patient in 2011. And he only lived long enough for them to fully test this more robust more reliable and smaller artificial heart. But what, what's interesting about this is that it circulates the blood continuously without pulsing. So in the near future, you might rest your head on your loved one's chest. They're warm to the touch. 
they're breathing, they're speaking, they're certainly alive, but they have no heartbeat. (laughs) So these are interesting considerations, but as I said, uh, these are all contestable. Uh, They're all contingent and they may never turn out the way that we imagine. And when you have been doing that for, you know, over 50 years now, and also just even thinking about the fact that, you know, your body changes and it ages, do you find that over that five-decade period, have the sort of inquiries and ideas, have they remained the same, or do you find that things change as the decades change? Oh, things things change, but for all sorts of reasons. The idea of the ear on my arm, for example, was an idea that came about in 1996. It was first imaged as an ear on the side of my head in 1997. It took 10 years to find three surgeons who might assist and to get funding for this project. And the first surgical procedures, of which there have been now four, happened in 2006. Had this project actually been initiated in 1996. In other words, had the surgery occurred in 1996, the ear might not have been the successful outcome that it now is. So there was a fortuitous outcome uh, to that difficulty of finding uh, medical assistance, surgical assistance. It took 10 years to to do that. And of course, yes, you know, your, your body is not the same as it was, you know, 30, 40 years ago, up until now, there's been no real discernible problems with doing what I've wanted to do. I don't suspend my body anymore. The last suspension I did was in 2012 in Melbourne. I I had stopped doing the suspensions. So, you know, I was able to do a suspension event, you know, 20-odd, 25-odd years after the previous one. Of course, your your body is not going to be as flexible, is not going to be, you know, able to perform some actions just as the, um, the performative um, span of a gymnast or a dancer is limited. But there's a lot greater flexibility in being an artist. You know, it's not purely a physical issue. You don't have to have a 14-year-old body as a gymnast, you know, in their prime has to be. So a body that is 75 years old that is an artist can still perform and make provocative actions um, that are are still meaningful and sometimes difficult to to realise. And that was Stellark for this seventh episode of The Long Run. Stay tuned for two more episodes to be released shortly, and you can also listen back to previous episodes with Mervyn Bishop, Suzanne Archer, Robert Owen, Gareth Sansom, Wendy Stavrianos, and John Walsley. You can subscribe to the Art Guide podcast on iTunes and Spotify, or otherwise listen at Art Guide Online, where you can also keep up to date with art-related features and interviews from across the country. Thank you.